Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need some ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 141 with Lyme expert Holly Ahern. Also, welcome with me to the studio, our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello. In this episode, you will learn where standard practices for treating infectious disease differ from treating Lyme disease, about how Borrelia burgdorferi does not behave like a regular bacteria, and why, when you are first diagnosed, it is so important to fight for as long a course of antibiotics as you can. Thanks, Aurora. And for those of you interested, I'll give you an update on the progress on my arm and let you know what's going on with that. And in the meantime, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Dr. Ahern. Will do. Holly Ahern is an associate professor of microbiology at SUNY Adirondack, who runs an undergraduate research lab. When Holly Ahern found out several years ago that her daughter's mysterious illness was Lyme disease, she quickly immersed herself in the subject. She soon learned about the controversy swirling around the disease and came to realize that many others were suffering, like her daughter. Ahern has become an advocate for developing a broader understanding of Lyme disease, one aimed at treating the chronic symptoms commonly reported by patients who are misdiagnosed or received inadequate treatment in the disease's early stages. Thanks, Aurora. And here's our interview with Holly Ahern. We talked, I can't believe it's been two years. I actually can't believe that either. Uh, it, it seems like it was just yesterday, but the truth. <laughs> Kind of a lot's happened in between, though, right? So it, it has. So this is a great time to catch up, especially as we're wrapping up or wrapped up uh, Lyme Awareness Month. And the other thing I want to be sure that we put a couple plugs in for is your new online Lyme quiz. And I'm happy to say I got 100%. I was a little nervous when I started out, I have to tell you. <laughs> well, it's funny because um, we've noticed a lot of people are actually doing it and it the you know my my um chris the my colleague was saying i think it's too easy and i said no people who have Lyme are taking it that's why they're getting it right you know so she wants me to write another one already which is going to be a like a 201 you know that's Lyme 101 this will be Lyme 201 so (laughs) yeah it's great what's the website address for that why don't we just kick that right off it's LimeActionNetwork.org is where you can find uh, not just the interactive quiz, but also lots of other information about Lyme disease and tick-borne diseases. Terrific. And we'll be sure to put that in the show notes and mention that a couple more times as well. It's awesome. a lot of fun. Awesome. And the answers are great. And it, they are basic, but it covers all the important facts that people know so they don't get stuck with chronic Lyme. So it's it's perfect. I think it hits a sweet spot. Thank you. I was trying for the misconceptions, the, the things that the 
information that's out there widely available. You know, the press always reports on the same information, but they haven't updated it in a long time. So I was trying for all those misconceptions, and um, it's nice to hear that you think I hit them. So thanks. Yeah, you know, I just got a phone call from a friend who's down in Cooperstown. I'm sure you get these calls mm-hmm. daily. Um, and uh, she said, you know, I don't remember getting bit. I'm not sure what I got it bit by. I'm feeling terrible, and I'm beginning to develop a little rash. Now, it wasn't the erythema migraines, wasn't the bullseye, but it was still a rash. And I said, get – she said, well, she told me her story of trying to get any antibiotics. And she eventually found a third – she went to a third doctor who would give her seven days. Um, and just just the – kind of tooth and nail fight just to get some basic preventive treatment here. And then she started feeling better, right? So, you know, oh, she gets the antibiotics in her, the replication of the bug slows down, and she starts, oh, I'm finally getting over this. Do I need to keep going? <laughs> yeah. And I'm yeah. begging her. I said, please, please, yes, keep going. Fight for fight for the 30 days. And I sent her some herbal uh, antibiotics as well to that she can continue taking after there if she's not able to even get beyond the 30 days. Right. You know, and, and shouldn't that be the patient's choice, uh, whether or not they, you know, there are always side effects. Any medication and antibiotics are certainly side effects too, and they do damage to the microbiome. So, you know, you got to be judicious about that. But when you weigh the risk and the rewards of not getting a tick-borne disease versus, you know, possibly having to take probiotics for weeks, you know, a couple of weeks to get your microbiome back in decent shape. I, I really think that should be up to the patient if, with that, explain to them that, okay, so if you don't take the antibiotic, you run the risk of developing Lyme disease, which is an all life-altering illness. If you do take the antibiotic, you might, your stomach might be upset for a few days, but you can mitigate that by taking probiotics and uh, fiber, right? I, I personally think that should be a decision that the both the physician and the patient get to make together, just if nothing else, to, you know, keep the patient from developing, not even, I don't want to say anxiety, but just to make people um, feel better about being bitten by ticks, particularly ones that have been in, on them for a long time. That's a very scary thing. It is, and especially if you have the symptoms of rash and and the flu-like symptoms. I mean, that's... I mean that's a slam dunk. Mhm. And yeah. You know that's the, true. the other the other thing I don't want well I do want to uh, I'm going to step on some toes a little bit. Uh, 30 days of antibiotics especially something like doxycycline is a trivial prescription. With all the drugs that are out there and all the problems with all these other drugs that are happening, that that's almost like prescribing mouthwash for 30 days. I mean, it's that simple and basic and you know, yeah, there are some side effects. I was recently in uh, the ER, and they wanted to give me uh, mega doses of ibuprofen to stop what they thought was some uh, injury inflammation. And we may talk about this later, actually. Um, and they said, well, there's some downsides to taking this much ibuprofen, and here's uh, some antacid to help calm your stomach to make sure we don't ruin the lining of your stomach. You know, so why can't they do something simple like that? It's just, it's mind, it's mind boggling. Right. And just to pile on that a little bit, they will provide antibiotics for months to a year or two to treat acne, the same antibiotic, which to kids, you know, so that part, I really just don't understand the logic at all. 
Well, you know, I was just interviewing. Oh, good grief! I'm going to forget his name. Uh, runs the lab in Germany for for testing for Lyme disease. It'll come to me. Later. Uh, our- yeah, Armin. Armin. That exactly yep. right. And his whole point was, it's all about the the procedural paperwork that goes on behind the scenes. He said, until you until we can get that change, the treatment's not going to change. Except you know, on a case by case basis, you know, doctor by doctor. So I, right. he he, I think he has a point. I think he has a point. Yep, I agree. Now, yep. speaking of that, because I know you're quite politically active, what's been going on since last we talked? So the last time we talked was two years ago. So in the two years in between, uh, there has been New York State legislation signed by Governor Cuomo. Um, I'm thinking that was two years ago, which it, we it was called the Doctor Protection Bill, and it actually uh, reduced the burden on physicians who treat Lyme disease patients. Uh, over fears that insurance companies will report them to the Office of Professional Medical Conduct and have their licenses reviewed, which, it, you know, nobody's lost their license in New York State as a result of these reviews, but these reviews are extremely expensive, and they act as a deterrent to any physician to want to get involved and try to help Lyme disease patients. So this the bill itself, which was signed into law, protects physicians from, um, you know, in other words, the Office of Professional Medical Conduct cannot review patients' cases, a doctor's cases, just simply on the on the basis of them treating Lyme disease. So that that uh, is surprisingly work that hasn't gotten out. So that's what we've been working on in the state is to try to make physicians aware that they do have protection um, as opposed to not treating Lyme disease patients or being very cautious in their treatment for Lyme disease, which you know everybody realizes at this point, um, for the most part, that early and aggressive treatment is what prevents the long-term symptoms of Lyme. And unfortunately, that's also controversial. So I think physicians are often reluctant. And I know that in our area in particular, they're still either they're prescribing nothing or they're doing this two-pill prophylactic, which is actually a very dangerous approach to treating any infectious disease, much less this one. And I still can't believe that that is considered. And what makes that dangerous as opposed to just like ineffectual? So here, I, when you expose bacteria to a limited dose of antibiotic, it will kill some of them, um, but there will be survivors. And those survivors, you know, if you remember the, the old adage there, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I don't mean the Kelly Clarkson song, although that's sort of applicable. <laughs> but it's so the survivors will are more likely to be resistant to future treatments with that same antibiotic, number one. And number two, for this bacteria in particular, when they are exposed to antibiotics, they are able to shut down certain genes and go into a metabolic state, well, actually a non-metabolic state, which is called a persister state. And in that, the persister state is not antibiotic resistant. It's more along the lines of antibiotic tolerance. So they're non-metabolic. So you can bathe them in anything you want, and none of those chemicals are going to have any effect on them because they're not actively taking them into the cell uh, or metabolizing them or anything else. So they're not they're not rapidly dividing. So it's, the antibiotic itself isn't going to stop them from doing that either. 
And of course, the danger for that is when you remove the antibiotic, the persister state reactivates to active bacteria again. So that's those two reasons. So, you know, just generically speaking, it's not a good idea to use low, you know, a short-term low dose of any antibiotic against any bacteria, which is, you'll notice this isn't done for any other infectious diseases. And then number two, specifically for these bacteria, which essentially it just gives them the opportunity to go dormant and then reactivate later and disseminate. So it actually drives them, you know, it drives them into this persister state and then the persister state is more likely to reactivate and disseminate later on down the line. So you skip the early symptoms. You don't get the bullseye rash, um, which you don't get anyway, but you don't get the bullseye rash. You don't get the flu-like symptoms, but you don't stop the bacteria from disseminating and therefore stop the possibility of chronic disease. So that's why I believe it is a bad medical, it's bad medical advice. And do you know where this to, like you said, I've never heard of that because, I mean, even years ago, really kind of pre-Lyme awareness on my part, when you're taking your kids for their ear infection, the doctors always say, or the nurse practitioner, be sure you finish the prescription, take all the pills. It's very important. Even if the child's feeling better, it's very important to kill off all the bacteria. What, why, why does sanity stop with Lyme disease? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Standard if I could practice. answer it. I mean, we're just talking standard <laughs> practice here, not anything yeah. special. Like, what? Yep. I'm trying not that's to That's absolutely correct. What the heck? Now, that is exactly right. That's now, exactly right. And there's so many things related to Lyme disease that you won't find in any other area of infectious disease medicine or even medicine in general, right? So it, it's very mysterious. Now, you may not know this off the top of your head, but I bet you do. What What's the replication cycle for time-wise for Borrelia? It's not your average bacteria. So I could tell you that for E. coli. I could tell you that for Staphylococcus aureus. They're, you know, they, their job is to eat and then use the energy to reproduce as quickly as they can. That's what they do for a living. Borrelia doesn't do that for a living. So I can't give you a standard um, time, how long it takes them to go through this doubling stage because they don't, they don't work like that. It's very similar to tuberculosis where, um, you know, the bacteria will be dormant for long periods of time and then there'll be a period of reproduction and then there will be a, a period where they don't reproduce um, and part of that also has to do with the fact that Borrelia are biofilm bacteria, yeah. and that lifestyle is very different from what we know of other, you know, the more routine bacteria that I could give you a quick answer for. So it's not that I don't know; it's just that it's highly variable, and it depends on environmental conditions very significantly. Remember, these are bacteria that cannot really grow outside of a host organism, a mammalian host. They they are difficult to grow outside of a mammalian host. So the conditions inside the body are changeable and also not predictable. So, you know, it, it, if they were rapidly dividing bacteria, it, you know, to go through this whole cycle, it probably takes, I know for treponema, they say it takes days to actually reproduce one cell into two. But again, that's depending on if, you, if they have all perfect conditions, if they're fed whatever it is they want to do or they're in the right atmospheric condition, that would be the amount of time. And that's not the real world. 
uh, for the for those bacteria. They, they're not culturable bacteria, so that's one of the things that we just really don't know. So, in, in contrast, e-, e. coli is minutes, right? In terms yep, of the twenty, yeah, twenty minutes. That's why when you get sick, you feel the waves of nausea because you get waves of reproduction. Is that correct? Or is that just toxic that, load and clearance? Yeah, I think that is part of it. You know, it's kind of remarkable with bacteria like E. coli because and other pathogenic bacteria that do that, they increase in numbers really rapidly because when they get to a critical mass, they actually talk to each other, and when they realize there's enough of them, they switch on uh, their virulence genes. So in other words, if, like, for example, a bacteria that produces a toxin that makes you have diarrhea, they all switch it on at the same time. No kidding. So that there's a higher likelihood that you will end up with diarrhea because that's their evil plan. You know, they want you to have <laughs> diarrhea because then spread you it. spread them to the next, you know, 10,000 of your closest friends and relatives, right? Yes. That's their overall plan. So pretty remarkable when you think about it. It, it is. And let, let me, t- I'm going to tell you my story now, my, my recent story. Here, I'll tell you the end of it and then I'll go backwards. So I am on temporary disability right now with something called Parsonage Turner syndrome. And the, the short version of that is like Bell's palsy for your arm. Your arm just goes limp. And of mm-hmm. uh, uh, a retired surgeon friend of mine who also has Lyme disease said, I bet this is what you have. And it turns out that he's right. And uh, it's a common effect, uh, a common condition to have with with Lyme disease. Now, I was Mm -hmm. infected 15 years ago. Bullseye rash, got two weeks of doxy early on, didn't know any better, didn't go longer than two weeks, probably actually 10 days. Um, anyway, so I had had 10 days of doxy, followed up with some Chinese herbs and some acupuncture, and was, for the most part, asymptomatic for 15 years. Fast forward, mm-hmm. <laughs> I got food poisoning here locally in, in Upstate from one of the local restaurants. I won't name them. And then mm-hmm. traveled to Thailand and in a six-month span got a second bout of food poisoning. And so that's why E. coli, e. coli right now is close to my heart because I have uh, very vivid memories of them uh, creating toxins and trying to spread themselves all over the house. <laughs> at, it sounds like at, they did a good job. At 3 a.m. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, then, so now we fast forward to the spring and – there's, you know, it's, I'm stressed. I'm coming back from this trip from Thailand and, and hitting the ground running and probably a little bit tired. Um, my gut biome has been disturbed by these two bouts of, of, uh, food poisoning. And about four, five, well, it was five weeks ago, five, five and a half weeks ago, I'm out, uh, early morning. It's windy. It's cold. I've got the wrong, clothing on, my feet get soaked, I start shivering, my teeth are chattering, and my shoulder starts aching. So I'm just thinking it's just muscle cramp, right? So this goes on for about 10 days. And then I wake up in the morning, and uh, my arm won't move. And I'm thinking to myself, this is really interesting. <laughs> you know, of course, given I've, you know, this is interview, whatever, 140 plus on Lyme disease, 
some sort of infections at the top of my mind. It's like, wow, this really, this really came on a lot like Bell's palsy. And I was just in the cold not too long ago. I'm wondering if it's something like that. So, you know, eventually it goes, well, will this go away? So it didn't go away, didn't go away, didn't go away, and went my way through urgent care and uh, the ER and finally to orthopedic. And they said it's not structural. You know, they did some CAT scans. They said this is this is neurologic, and that's when I started talking to people. And my friend suggested it might be this Parsonage Turner, and I I believe it's viral. Now, it you know could it have been a biofilm or a latent Lyme reactivated by all this kind of stuff? Is it just viral and just a coincidence? But it's it's funny that once you know once those biofilms are set up or this this uh, spore form of the Borrelia, you know, who, who will, we may never know, right? Our testing isn't good enough yet. No, it's not good enough yet. And you're, what you're describing is something that happens to a lot of people and it happens following infection. So whether it was, and I, you know, I'm, it could be it could be the one, but it, you know, because it's neurological, right away you want to think that it's some kind of neurotropic uh, thing, right? So when you mention viruses, the herpes viruses, the ones that actually reside in the neurons themselves, are known to do that, right? That's what they're they're a notorious cause of Bell's palsy, and um, in addition to Lyme disease. But what's kind of interesting is that, you know, everybody thinks immediately it's viral because they don't think that bacteria can be that clever. And by that clever, I mean, they can't act like viruses. They, you know, they can't invade nerve cells. They can't do the things that viruses can do, but they can. And that is where infectious disease needs to evolve um, and should be evolving fast because Borrelia certainly isn't the only one of these remarkable bacteria that, you know, in in some ways act more like viruses than they do bacteria, or they act more like, to be more truthful, they act like protozoa, like malaria, right? Babesia is a protozoal parasite. Um, They're acting more along those lines. And because they're bacteria, the historical perspective on any infection caused by bacteria is, well, we have antibiotics for that. So, Let's not worry about the bacterial infections because we we just have to figure out what the right combination of antibiotics is, and we know that is now that's false. We know that's false. We know that there are naturally antibiotic tolerant bacteria, Borrelia being one of them, and they've acquired thanks to our poor judgment. Many bacteria have acquired resistance, full resistance to all antibiotics, and in that regard, we're going right back to the days before we had antibiotics at all. So hopefully what comes next, you know, we humans won't quite be as crazy as we were the first time around thinking that we had this whole thing licked because uh, bacteria are as remarkable as any other kind of, you know, as a protozoa or as a virus. And we need to start looking at some of them in that way. And so what's... who? Who else besides you, of course, is doing interesting research on Borrelia? Do we have some new players out there aside from you and Eva Shapi and uh, the group down at Hopkins jumps to mind and the the group down – is it Tulane? Somewhere in the south. Yep. Yep. Tulane University. They Actually, down there, they're working with non-human primates. Yep. 
which is an advantage because they can, there are just some research that you couldn't do with human subjects that they can do with monkeys that provide very good information about what goes on uh, in humans, right? Because the non-human primate is, is about as close as it gets to humans. So that's what Tulane, what they're doing down there at Tulane. And, you know, just I would add to that Kim Lewis's lab in Northeastern University, um, they're, they're actually working on the how to kill them problem. Um, what, what would be the best approach to using antibiotics, using other chemicals um, besides antibiotics to look at that. We also have Dr. Neil Spector, who is the uh, Duke University medical school oncologist who got Lyme disease himself and had to have a heart transplant actually because of Lyme carditis. And he has become, you know, he's a cancer researcher and he realizes the similarities between what cancer cells do. You know, they're very selfish and they're, they're invasive. And he realizes that Borrelia has many of these properties. And so he's, he's, yeah, yeah, the pathways, he's looking at those pathways and he's, um, they're looking at different, FDA-approved drug compounds that can interfere with their metabolism that might have a, an impact. That's, uh, that's looking very hopeful. And also Garth Ehrlich, uh, Garth Ehrlich at Drexel University Medical School, and he's doing the same thing. He's using um, computational approaches to develop targets. What he's working on in particular is the pathway where the bacteria are able to go into persister mode, it's called a stringent response. So it's called that because when conditions get really bad in the environment, what what many bacteria do is they turn on this so-called stringent approach, which is the first steps in letting them go into a dormant, you know, immune state, so to speak. And so what Ehrlich and his team are working on is they've they've modeled um, this, this pathway and they have come up with um, some molecular targets that could block the ability of the bacteria to even go into persistent mode at all, which restores the power of antibiotics, right? Of course. So that would not just apply to Borrelia, but it would apply to other infectious diseases as well. So that's pretty exciting stuff too. And what I have to tell you is that pretty much all of those, all of those research teams are being funded by private funding, not NIH ah, funding, really? private funding. Yes. Where does the I, and that NIH is, money go? That's a travesty. I know the NIH a lot money of it. goes to <laughs> it goes to the same old, same old people Doing who the are the ones old, who old. put us in this place in the first place. The the people who are at New York Medical College, who are at Yale University, um, you know, the the people who were there at the beginning forty years ago, that mass gen, you know, who uh, kind of put their labels on the disease as to what they thought it were. They're now the experts, and so they, they give each other the money because they're the ones who serve on the review teams for um, the grants, right, the grant proposals. They they get to review them, and they decide who gets the money, and they're giving it all to themselves. So, And plus, there really isn't a whole lot of money given the magnitude of the disease. There's only something along the lines of $20 million per year, and I know that sounds like a lot, but when you think about, the size of grants, you know, if, if people get a million dollar grant over five years or whatever, there's 20 teams that you, you can fund and um, no new researchers certainly at all get any of that money. Well, that's, But the good news is yes. we have private money that is now leading the way. And I think eventually the NIH is going to have to look at that and say, gosh, how embarrassing, you know, maybe we ought to step up and, and um, help out here. That's, that's, the, that's the pathway that has to happen. 
Here's here's a funny I think note. So. My, my, I grew up in Washington D.C. My dad was around. Let's just say around the government. And this is a story from 30 years ago. He said, "Here's an interesting fact, McKay. That did you know that the GAO and GAO is the Government Accounting uh, Agency. And so th- they look at, at misspending. They try to find fraud and make sure the, the the agencies are doing their job. At this point, this is 30 years ago. They would not look at any budget item smaller than 100 million dollars." So twenty million dollars is a not even a rounding error to the government. Mm-hmm. That's how much yep. money flows around there. So it's just the twenty million is uh, is crazy. But on the other hand, it's amazing what a small, dedicated lab can produce with minimal funding. That's the good news. Now to get you know into the big trials and drugs and stuff like that, that costs billions. But to get things started, it's really remarkable what you and your colleagues are doing. So thank you for pushing through and, and fighting for this. Well, well, thanks. I appreciate that. We do a lot with a little because we have a dedicated team of undergraduate students who are aching for research experience. So that, that helps a lot as well. <laughs> Keep them young and hungry, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so here's a question there may not be an answer to. It's something that I, uh, it, now that I have lots of spare time, have really gone down a rabbit hole, and it's nitric oxide. Do you know of anybody who's doing work with Borrelia and nitric oxide? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I don't. Okay. I don't. I mean, I know nitric oxide, what it does to the human physiology. I know what that is for, but I don't know really anything about the research that's going on in that realm. Well, let me let me put a bug in your ear, and maybe it'll be something that will interest you or one of your students at some point. So it turns out they keep on discovering more versions of nitric oxide, or actually more versions of the enzyme that creates it. So there's a calcium channel-dependent nitric oxide group, and it's produced in the mitochondria, and it's the endothelial that we're familiar with with the blood flow, and there's a neuronal... And then there's inducible nitric oxide, which is more part of the immune system and right. mm-hmm. doesn't require the calcium channel. So when that gets fired up, it just creates all this nitric oxide, which then reacts and creates peroxynitrite and right. just all this poisonous soup that just goes around and right. kills stuff. Now, yep. I'm, I'm sure I – I'm wondering if one of the things that happens with chronic inflammation, I'm not the only one, so I'm just following this thread of research out there, that part of the problem with some of these really chronic inflammatory states is the INOS, the inducible nitric oxide, gets turned on and doesn't get turned back off. Um, it's meant to be something that's upregulated for a very short period of time, but if you have persistent bacteria... Right, mm-hmm. then it then it goes on and stays on, and high levels of nitric oxide start killing off the mitochondria. They start shutting that down. Mm-hmm. They do other damage. They can activate mast cell. It's like every time I turn a page on the nitric oxide research, it's one other thing. It disturbs sleep cycles specifically. Yep. You know, so it, there's this aging. What happens as we age is our, our all these calcium dependent channels, we produce less and less nitric oxide. So the INOS takes over because these it's such an important chemical in the sleep. So our, the quality of our sleep diminishes, but we can still sleep. But, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, maybe that pathway is explained so many of these different effects that we see with uh, the, Borel, the response to the 
the Borrelia. And there are, I've come across a couple articles where they're looking at some bacteria um, or, do something with the nitric oxide. It's like they influence the body's ability to produce it, so they, they resist it some. And there was one talking about the, the microphagy of the Borrelia and how the the immune cells were able to devour it only if they were previously targeted by um, by the immune system. So it had to be like a two-step process for the immune system to successfully devour the spirochete. And it's it's just and and part of that is is nitric oxide uh, dependent. So it's just it's uh, it's just really fascinating to me. So it is, and honestly, the the chronic inflammation and the release of reactive oxygen species of alka oxidative stress on mitochondria seems to be an underlying theme on all of these things. And when you throw in when you add in that and there are current antibiotics damage mitochondria because mitochondria are actually bacteria, right? Yeah. So the, when we take antibiotics, we're also damaging them and also, you know, preventing the mitochondria from making ATP, which, you know, obviously that can cause fatigue as well. There's so much to our immune system, especially when it comes to bacteria that we don't understand that we need to understand, um, you know, like how, for example, does a bacterial infection trigger so-called autoimmunity, which, you know, is it, is your body really attacking itself or is your body trying to get rid of an intracellular agent and that's the, the unsuccessfully, right? So they just keep escalating the inflammation, trying to get rid of the thing that's hiding inside the cells. You got to wonder about that, or at least I wonder about that and, you know, what, what to do about that because antibiotics are not going to solve that problem, right. but neither are immunosuppressive agents going oh, to solve God. that problem, which exactly. are the two treatments yep. that we have available. <laughs> so, yep. Something needs to change in that model. Yes. You know, the, the other thing that's that's interesting with this is there's this Chinese concept. Uh, so we're all familiar with yin and yang, and that's the you need the balance between the hot and the cold. Let's just put it very simply. So the hot would be the inflammatory response, and the, the cold would be the anti-inflammatory response. So that's the the very simple crossover from Chinese to Western medicine. However, there's this concept where you can have insufficient fire. So your, your inflammatory response isn't strong enough to kind of cross over and trigger the anti-inflammatory cascade. So you can, in other words, the, the way I'm thinking about it and I'm wondering is like in the body kind of create enough of an environment where it just, because it's not strong enough, it sort of incubates the bacteria and it helps it grow rather than really go in there and, and kill it off. And that, you know, could be because we have a weakened immune system going in or maybe a lack of anti-inflammatory compounds because of our diet or genes or whatever. So there's, there's all these different ways of thinking about it. And, and for the most part, all the research out there is, you know, we'd have to shut down the inflammation. We have to, you know, make sure mm-hmm. that we don't have the damage caused by the inflammation. But the inflammation's there for a reason. You know, that's the same thing yes. that happens with the with the steroids is they shut down the inflammation. That's great, but now you're really sick. You know, so may, maybe what we need is something to to help us get over the hump. You know, and then and then calm back down. Um, so it, the the thinking needs to progress, and and what how you're thinking and talking is is leads me to have great hope. 
and I'm not the only one thinking and talking that way. Microbiologists truly understand that, and it, it's just it hasn't really translated into the medical approach to diseases that are caused by these microbes. Because you know what you were talking about, you have to factor in the the bacteria as well. Because while our bodies are doing what our bodies are doing, the bacteria are actively trying to subvert you know, change the immune response to suit themselves. They are in control of this. They do not, these particular bacteria, you know, Borrelia, uh, they live as in nature, the, their natural hosts are mammals. And so when they spill over to humans, they sort of have the communication down, you know, so they can tell our immune system to calm down and don't attack me. Um, but our immune systems are different than the natural host. And so we go after them in a slightly different way. And that, could produce that escalation, you know, the, the escalation of inflammation without the switch over to B cell immunity. That's antibodies. And that's how we, um, you know, are the higher, the so-called higher vertebrates. It's the production of sterilizing antibodies that, because we expect to live a lot longer than a mouse does, um, that makes all the difference. And interestingly, the bacteria shut that off. We know that Borrelia can shut that off. And they also can shut off complement, which is one of those frontline uh, defense systems that our immune system has, they can shut that off. So they're very talented microbes. They're communicating with our immune systems all the time. And the other part of that is our microbiome is also communicating with our immune system all the time. So if you have a background like you had, where you had an infectious disease of your GI tract, which completely alters your microflora, and your microflora isn't communicating with your immune system properly. You know, you're getting all sorts of bad messages there. Meanwhile, the bacteria that have colonized you are sensing all this and are thinking, oh, now's my big chance. <laughs> and a lot, right? That allows for reactivation of uh, latent infections. And this works for viruses too, by the way. You know, if you've ever, anybody who has a herpes simplex infection, you know, cold sores. The cold sores come out when you're under stress. Why? Because of the physiological changes that the virus is able to exploit when the immune system isn't paying full attention. So all of that needs to be factored into a much bigger picture. And I think that it is. I, I would personally like to see it happen a lot faster, but, you know, science doesn't happen that way. So, <laughs> no, and you want to get it right. You know, that's important yeah, too. Course. So, And this is the... I, I would tease my patients years ago. I said, this is, and I was thinking of just the gut biome at the time, you know, this is the final frontier of medicine and, you know, there'll be another frontier after it. There, there always is, mm -hmm. but you know, and it's turning out, okay, so we've got a gut biome, but you know what? We also have a stomach biome and a mouth biome and probably a sinus biome and a skin biome. And probably our armpit biome is different than our genital biome. And then we have our home biome. And, you know, and then we have our neighborhood biome. So we're, it's, it's ridiculously interrelated and it's looking more and more like these fuzzy, weird concepts the Chinese medicine have, like they consider a, a, a Borrelia type infection, a goo infection. They, they consider a person being possessed, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. like, and yep. the end stages of these possessions are you lose your mind, right? So it's not that far of a stretch. But the, the point they're trying to make is you're not the one in control anymore. No, is and it? we never were. That's, that's <laughs> the real, you know, I tell this to my students all the time. You know, you think you're the one that wants that candy bar. You're not. It's your gut bacteria that want the sugar because they 
are fermentive and they're sending messages to you that tell your brain you want that. So they, they have been in control for a very long time. Yeah. So people don't appreciate that. And, you know, it, we've been calling them germs and trying to get them out of our lives for the past, yes. what, 100 years since we've known that they can cause disease. And the thing is, you know, there's the disease causes, which I call the one percenters. And then there's the 99% that, right. yeah, we don't want to necessarily kill, but we're right. the collateral damage when we with what we're doing. Well, we, we don't even have a framework in which to think about this. No, nope. right. No, nope. I mean, we've got, uh, uh, again, a default kind of to Chinese medicine because it's much more interrelated, but the Western medicine idea is that we are this sterile machine and that we need to kill off anything, you know, that, that comes up the gears. Um, right. and it's just such an inefficient, uh, insufficient, uh, way of addressing this problem. There's matter of fact, there's zero tolerance. There's zero room for, for it to, it's not even anywhere close to fitting in the box. We need such a bigger box to think in. It's crazy. So, here, so here's the interesting thing too. And I want to put this in the, the, your, your thinking cap and cause it's not just Borrelia that hides behind biofilm. You know, there are other biofilms that can be there previously, and I, I'm sure Borrelia plays nice with others, and if there's a biofilm there, it's going to, you know, give its secret handshake at the door and be, be let in. I've, I had a patient recently, and she had this funny history of recurring uh, bronchitis uh, after the holidays, and this had been going on for five or six years. And so after doing a really thorough history, she had this incredible history of earaches as a child. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've being around the Lyme world, you start hearing about biofilms and learning about them, and the the model that it's not necessarily a viral ear infection if it doesn't respond to antibiotics, there's a good chance it's a biofilm. So we right. we cooked up uh, an essential oil recipe for her, a liposomal essential oil recipe for her to try and get in there and begin breaking up this biofilm. And she's, she's starting to feel better. And I was telling my daughter this and she said, oh, you know what? Speaking of that, you know, my ear hurts every time I go out in the wind. And I wonder if I've got this. So we did the same thing with her. So it's not, it doesn't even have to be something as dangerous as Borrelia. It could be some of the more simple bacteria, but they call these you know, cyclical, you know, in my mind, it was, you know, it was just the stress, just like what happened to me. It was the stress of the holidays. It was probably the lack of vitamin D. It was probably a little too much sugar. It was a cold weather that allowed this, the, the bacteria to come out from behind the biofilm, start colonizing, kind of like you talked about with the E. coli and dumping toxins and, and travel down her eustachian tubes, back of her throat and into her lungs. And, you know, again, the, Western medicine doesn't have a model to think about persistent bacteria or biofilms or co-commitment or living or, you know, travelers or aliens or whatever we need to call it to, to begin to think and diagnose this kind of stuff. Right. And treat it. That's and the more important it, thing. And because it's clear our current approaches um, are not sufficient, right? So for a proportion of infections, like I said, the one percenters, antibiotics have worked very well and we've lost that because they have evolved resistance now and for the rest of them it never worked to begin with and so 
the recurring ear infections and, um, you know, UTIs are another one where oh they, it's due to, uh, you know, biofilm bacteria that are causing that. And so, you know, the it, medicine is trying to wrap their head around what to do about biofilms, but they're trying to approach it from the same perspective. It's like, all right, so we have to kill the bacteria in the biofilm. Well, good luck with that. You're not gonna. <laughs> it's just not possible. I mean, they, they, we know that those biofilms are resistant to doses of uh, antibiotics or even chemicals, you know, if, if the biofilms on environmental services that are a thousand times more than uh, routine doses, there's, there's no possible way that we're going to be able to do that. So that's why, you know, I, I got to say Garth Ehrlich's research looking at um, disrupting or interfering with with their ability to go into the persister state to begin with is going to restore some of the power to antibiotics that, you know, cause they're, they're useful for some things. And what, by doing that, he's taking the, you know, the biofilm bacteria and turning them back into the one percenters, the kind that are rapidly growing again, which the antibiotics are going to be effective against. So it, it's, it's an interesting prospect anyway. I, I that's very encouraging. That's uh, the, the, oh, what am I trying to think of? Um, just a little skip, move right along. So is, is there anything out there in terms of biofilm research that's showing promise at this point? Or is it all just, wow, this is really curious stuff with really incredible characteristics and we're still trying to figure it out? In terms of Borrelia, they're finding that, uh, you know, both Lewis's team and then also Zhang's team at Johns Hopkins are looking outside the box. They're looking at different FDA-approved chemicals that, and they're testing them against bacteria growing in culture. Of course, all of that has to be done first in, you know, in, in mice probably, and then that has to be there has to be clinical trials. But these are FDA-approved chemicals, so that should move forward faster. So there's that kind of research. Um, and as I mentioned, just trying to stop them from going into biofilm mode to begin with. But in nature, bacteria live in biofilms. They don't live by themselves. Right. Um, so they they have a big head start on that. So we'll see what comes <laughs> out of there. <laughs> we'll see what comes out of it. It's gonna it's gonna obviously take time. And uh, you know, in terms of right now, I would say that anything that the Eastern type of medicine has is probably just as good as anything the Western side and probably better. Um, because like you said, it's more of a, we're looking at it as if the person is possessed. Well, they are possessed, permanently possessed by these bacteria and biofilm. So um, that's one way of, of approaching it. So, You know, it, it, this is one of these funny alternative treatments, and I haven't done it myself and kind of fell off the radar and then listening to you reminded me of it. There are people who get uh, pulsed magnetic treatment for Lyme disease, and they can have a herx from it. And my thinking when I first heard that was like, I wonder if the magnet disrupts the actual chemical structure of the biofilm and allows some of the enzymatic activity that the immune system's trying to do. Anyway, the immune system's trying to get through it. It just can't. Um, and I, I wonder about that. So I asked a few people who had Lyme disease, you know, if, 
have you had an MRI? Because, you know, there's a pretty strong magnet there. And by any mm-hmm. chance, did you have a Herx to the MRI, even if you didn't have any contrast? And I got a couple positive responses. And so that's, you know, there might be a physical way to disrupt these biofilm, not just, not just chemical. Well, and that's true. And there's actually good research on that um, by the father of biofilm science, William Costerton, who has um, passed away away within the past couple of years. Uh, But he, you know, he was the first to come out and say, yeah, bacteria live in biofilms. What are we doing? And he was actually using pulsed electrical fields uh, to, to, he was working on um, having seen what effect that they had on bacteria in biofilms, and he had very good results. I mean, there's a good body of published literature, and you know, just for full disclosure, I that was you know that's one of those things that is always out there um, trying to use uh, uh, electric fields or pulse fields to uh, disrupt bacteria. So uh, that's something that I've actually done in my laboratory, where I've exposed bacterial cultures of biofilm-producing bacteria in antibiotic-resistant bacteria to um, various frequencies of electric fields and in the presence and absence of different antibiotics. And, you know, when you add the pulsed field to antibiotic at suboptimal levels, I might add, so in other words, the dose that you would normally use, you, you cut that back by 10 times. So at low doses with in the presence of pulsed fields, um, with, I can actually kill the bacteria, just inhibit their growth, right, but kill them, decrease the number of viable cells in this population. And that's only been, I've only done that um, in cultures, right, in cultures, but that's certainly something that could be looked at further. And I noticed that there are, for example, a few years ago, I think it was a year ago, this would be new since the last time we talked, um, the wound patients who are uh, who receive more wounds in in battle right so our military personnel that were uh, that ended up with uh, incendiary device wounds right where they had burn wounds um, those wounds often get infected by bacteria that produce biofilms um, one of them is acinetobacter balmani is the name of the bacteria so they're very powerful biofilm producers and once you get a biofilm in those wounds the, the prognosis for the wound is it gets much and much worse. So those people are losing limbs. And so um, they, this, in this one study, they were actually using, um, and, th- and this was in mice, okay, so they were exposing the mice with the burn wounds to um, pulse fields in the presence of a couple different antibiotics, and what they noticed was a significant rate of improvement um, of for those wounds. So there's uh, I would bet that there, since that was a, last, a publication from last year, I would bet there's going to be more on that to come pretty readily because the Department of Defense, of course, the DOD, is very interested in helping uh, their military personnel who are injured in these battles. So that should move forward pretty quick. And there's applications, obviously, for other fields, for any field where you're dealing with bacteria and biofilms. Yes. And uh, 20 million is one toilet seat, right? Yeah, pretty much. Or a hammer. Or a hammer. Oh, uh, okay. So we could obviously talk about this for about another hundred years. One one thing. Yeah. (laughs) When when we were talking about the father of the biofilm, you broke up a little bit, so I didn't get his name. What's his name? William Costerton. And he was at Montana State University. Okay. 
way up there. And in fact, they, they established a center for biofilm engineering at, at Montana State University under his direction. Okay, here's, here's a totally – are they using biofilm for anything positive? So have you heard of a SCOBY? Do you know what a SCOBY is? Mm, no. So you make kombucha? Do you oh, know yeah, what kombucha yeah, of is? yeah, yeah. Okay, so the way you make kombucha is to take um, what SCOBY stands for is a symbiotic community of bacteria and yeast. So you allow this biofilm of, of bacteria and yeast to form, and you give it sugar, and it ferments the sugar and produces a carbonated beverage. Okay, so that's the commercial use for it. But it turns out that the, the biofilm produced by these yeast and bacteria is tough. I mean, it's it's really tough. It's... it's uh, it can get very, very thick, and it's almost like a, a fake leather. And so they're looking at different uses for the for those for that particular type of biofilm, and you know, for wound coverings, and also just believe it or not, they're making fake leather out of it. So in other words, <laughs> leather that would not involve animals at all. So they're they're growing it um, using the the scoby. So. But, so there's that's a positive thing that's that biofilms do, that's and there's many positive things that biofilms do. We just don't necessarily look for the positives. We always look for the negatives, right? right. Well, they protect when they our, cause disease, then we're yeah. concerned. They protect our teeth. They protect our stomach. They protect our gut. Yep. You know, just, yep. they probably protect our skin and eyes. Yep. Now, this is all true. One last technical question since we're out there in kind of uh, physics land. Is is there any research on biofilms and light, laser, or LED frequency type stuff? That I don't know. Okay. Uh, I haven't actually looked at that one. So you're talking about UV, the idea of using a UV treatment? Whatever the wavelength is. Like in treatment and and wound treatment, they use some uh, near-infrared and red. Uh, Skin bacteria stuff, acne type stuff, they use uh, some blue and uh, and UV uh, wavelengths. So they're apparently these different wavelengths have can have different properties. so there's they do have different properties, yeah. and in fact, they they use laser in uh, as a it's there's a, a laser treatment that's actually FDA approved for pain, right? So you could um, you know go if you have a injury or or um, you know something along those lines, you can actually go and get that treatment. Exactly. Which is that that that's an FDA approved treatment. So obviously there's some that's a laser type treatment. Um, and then I also know that they are using UV treatments, and I, they are seeking uh, FDA approval for this. But um, they're putting the UV in—well, not putting, but they're they're inserting a catheter, and then shining UV into um, the blood vessel as the blood flows by this UV, and that has an effect. And some of the effect is to stimulate immune system response, and some are saying that it might actually be, um, in, you know, it might kill any pathogens that might be found in the blood. But, you know, if they're in the blood, they're probably inside of cells in the blood, which means if you're going to kill a pathogen, you yeah. might actually kill, have to kill the cell. Kill the cell as well. So, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. So, but there's, I mean, there, there's conceptually, all of these things make sense. And what it is just going to take are some really good, well-designed clinical trials to see if they actually have, a, you know, there's any kind of medical application that can come out of that. 
Dr. Ahern, you have been incredibly considerate and generous with your Friday afternoon time. Thank you for chatting. And I want you to give you the last word. And uh, let's mention the the quiz website again and anything else you want to say to wrap up this conversation. Well, thanks. So the uh, there's an interactive quiz available uh, that is available at LimeActionNetwork.org to test your Lime IQ, if you want to look at it that way. Um, everybody should go give it a try. And in addition, at our website, Lime Action Network website, we have lots of other good information. Um, keep trying to keep people up to date with uh, everything that's been going on on the advocacy side as well. So thanks for letting me um, mention that on, uh, in this interview. I appreciate that. Oh, you're very, very welcome. And congratulations for getting a 100 on it. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. I'll give you an A. How's that? Thank you. I was thinking we need, like, if you get a 100, you should get, like, a Lime Literate sticker or bumper sticker or something like that. We need, <laughs> we need, we need sponsors. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, I'll have to look into that. We'll have to look into that. <laughs> this interview was fascinating. You know, before you got into this great <laughs> – line of conversation about nitric oxide and every, and things like that. Holly was saying, Dr. Ahern was saying something about how the Borrelia bacteria acted more like protozoa than it did, uh, than it did a normal bacteria. And it reminded me of one of our early interviews where a woman was saying that she was treating her Lyme disease by, uh, looking at both anti antibacterial and antiviral uh, treatments, or treatments that could incorporate both into into one kind of thing. So, well, that's one of the beauties of working with essential oils or with Chinese herbs and natural substances, is that the exact properties aren't distilled out. So, when a company makes an antibiotic, they're really looking at the substances that kill or slow down the replication of bacteria and bacteria only. That's why it's useless to take antibiotics for a viral infection. However, most plants have defenses against fungus and viruses and protozoa and all types of things like that. So when you take these substances as a whole, you have a much broader range, a much broader effect on the on the herb or the essential oil than you do with just a simple antibiotic there. So it is interesting that Borrelia is not your typical, it's an atypical bacteria. So it's, you know, it has more DNA than the typical bacteria. So it has more tricks up its sleeve to survive and it uses all of those. So you need a broad spectrum support, a broad spectrum treatment plan to really begin to address all of Borrelias and actually the co-infections too. Although the co-infections have different strategies, not quite as uh, smart as the Borrelia is, they they can be as persistent. and And one reason is uh, something like Babesia will invade your blood cells and then live within the blood cells. That makes it a hard target uh, to eradicate once it's once it's inside. Makes it much more like malaria. So it can be quite dangerous and have all kinds of funny periodic. Uh, problems. You get the periodic fevers like that. 
And sometimes I feel like the co-infections don't get as much attention for causing as much trouble as they do. Like it's the Borrelia burgdorferi that gets all the attention, I feel like, sometimes. Well, you know, one of the problems is just hard to talk about multiple infections at the same time. So Mm. right now, Lyme disease is the Elvis of tick-borne infections. (laughs) So he's the headliner. But, yeah, there's always the opening acts, right? And almost everybody, almost everybody has a co-infection. And whether it's a pre-existing viral infection, uh, you know, herpes infection or Epstein-Barr infection, or whether it's something that came along with the tick, whether it's Borrelia, Bartonella, Bartonella, mycoplasma, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. So that's just, it's important to know that you're not just, you're probably not just going after the Lyme disease itself. That, it, you know, it's one of uh, Horowitz's MSIDs, like they're multiple multiple symptoms, multiple diseases, all happening at the all time, at the same time, and they all must be addressed. Yeah, that's very that's oh, very encouraging. And I forgot to mention, we interviewed Dr. Ahern many, many moons ago. It was episode number 26. So if you want to hear that interview as well, she's just absolutely a treasure. And we're so lucky to have her here in New York State. So that's episode number 26. We'll have that link in the show notes section. All right. And... If you like what we are doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, we'd appreciate it if you would support our efforts by subscribing. Go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you will see the subscribe button under the featured episode. Okay. Time for the arm update. (laughs) So big news this week is I can lift my arm And I don't know how much of my bicep is firing and maybe the supporting muscles, but I could lift my and lift my arm and touch my nose. So this is this is big improvement. The pain is yay, yay, Yay. celebrate small (laughs) victories. The pain is much much improved. Uh, It's down to somewhere between a point five and a one point five, and really just kind of as annoying ache uh, from time to time. I am treating it using topical probiotics, meaning skin probiotics from Mother Dirt. And I'm doing that because I'm thinking perhaps part of the underlying issue, what gave this to rise aside from all the stress going on, we can talk about that another time, is a lack of nitric oxide. So the bacteria in this probiotic, the skin probiotic, uh, create nitric oxide. And I'm also doing an oral probiotic uh, with the same thought in mind uh, and increasing my intake of green, green leafy vegetables, which have the nitrates needed uh, for a separate pathway for nitric oxide, not the NOS pathways, the nitric oxide synthase pathway, which use arginine. There's a, a pathways that happen in the mouth, gut, and on the skin that are independent from these enzymes. And lastly, of course, I'm taking my megaspore probiotic. So that's, those are the main things. I'm almost done the Cowden protocol and I'm shifting over to classical pearls. I'm taking, uh, three different of those at the moment. Uh, the dragon, dragon, thunder, and one other one. I don't remember what is it, it is. Serpent or lightning? Oh, no, that's right. It's dragon and serpent right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, I'm just wondering if I didn't pick up some 
bigger type of bug when I was in Thailand. So I'm doing uh, something for flukes, something for intestinal parasites. So we'll we'll see what happens with that. So that about does it. Uh, I've gotten a few emails, people suggesting. Uh, remedies for nerve regeneration. I appreciate that very much. I'll take those into consideration as this continues. And I really appreciate you looking out for me out there. So thanks. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know that the smoothie was invented when a ninja needed information from a banana. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.